0: Gospel of Mark today. we're still in chapter one taking 14 through 20. you know it was about 22 years ago that I preached my first sermon ever and I'll never forget that first attempt at preaching. My dad uh, is was and is a bivocational pastor and so he was a full-time guitar professor at the local junior college and then he would preach at this church and still preaches at that church on the weekends. And kind of does that part-time. And so he asked me in my junior year of college to fill the pulpit for him. I had no intentions on uh, being a pastor at that point in my life. My goal at that point was to be a sixth-grade math teacher. I was an education major at Indiana University. and, And so he was just like, you know what? Hey, you volunteer in the church and things, and your faith is important to you. Why don't you give me a Sunday off and fill the pulpit? And so I reluctantly agreed to preach my first sermon at Cumberland Presbyterian Church there in Monroe City, with maybe I don't know 15 folks in the in the congregation, just a small small country church in a small country town of uh, Monroe City might have 300 people in it, maybe more dogs than people I would I would guess, uh, definitely more cows and pigs. But uh, I, I went for it, and I remember being so nervous at my first attempt at preaching. And you know when you get especially nervous. Your body, like, sabotages everything you're doing, right? I I was terrified at public speaking. Talking to sixth graders did not intimidate me, but preaching in a a sermon in a church service, that did intimidate me and still intimidates me. But you know when you get really, really nervous, your body just sabotages everything you're trying to do. Like, my voice was shaking, my body was shaking. I was just, I I was a nervous, nervous wreck. And, And the worst thing of all and maybe you've had this happen to you before your speech and speech class or whatever. All of the saliva just dries up in your mouth. Like, it, my, my mouth was just a desert. I, there was not a, an inkling of moisture anywhere in my mouth. And I have to preach. I have to speak. And I'm just like, oh, man, I have no moisture in my mouth. What am I going to do? And I, on my way up to the pulpit, because now it's time for me to preach, I see two uh, two, two uh, candy wrappers of, of double bubble, right? You know, the, the, just the tasteless like parade gum that you get, double bubble. And so on my way up, I just unwrap those two uh, wrappers and I, I stick two uh, pieces of double bubble into my mouth as I go behind the pulpit. And so now I go from this desert in my mouth to like a rush of saliva. And I'm chonking down on uh, this gum. Like, you know how hard it is to get it going? And I'm getting it going as I'm starting my sermon. And the pulpit there at Cumberland Presbyterian Church was this old school pulpit. And it had this microphone on one of these. You know, like the mic at Captain D's when you order food? And like, like, like I'll take the, the fish Platter or whatever, they're like fresh platter. You know that mic—that's the mic that was like on this pulpit, and it was about that quality too. And so I'm chonking on this gum and I'm drooling, and it's just a disaster. And this mic's making all kinds of of noises. And I did my best to preach a sermon uh, and and just keep it going for even 15 minutes. I mean, if I was if I hit that 15-minute mark, I I was going to count that as a win. And I finally got to the end of that sermon, uh, and, and um, we're, we're, we had uh, the closing of the service, and I see this elderly woman, one of the 15 people there, she's coming down in her walker, and she's, she's coming, down. I'm like, she's going, going to encourage me, right? Of course, I just preached my first sermon. And she comes up to me, and she puts her arm around me, gives me a hug, she's like, Cody, I didn't understand a word you just said. That was the moment I knew I wanted to be a preacher. (laughs) She's like, that was completely pointless. None of us heard anything but you chonking on that gum. And she was scolding me for chewing on gum. You should be chewing gum at church, period, let alone when you're preaching the sermon. What are you thinking? And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm an idiot. I'll go home. Uh, But man, it was just a rough start. I would imagine that any pastor that you talk to, if they have any experience preaching whatsoever over the years, they would tell you that it was a rough start. Very few pastors or preachers, like, are just immediately engaging or, or, or immediately just you know spitting fire and changing lives. Right? There, that just doesn't happen. Everybody has a rough start, and you got to start somewhere. And mine was with double bubble at a small church in the middle of Indiana. And so, uh, but there was one preacher who had. A really good start, and that was Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about today. We get to see the beginning of his preaching ministry. Do you think of Jesus as a preacher? When when he started his ministry, he was proclaiming. He was preaching. He had something to say. And immediately, this preaching impacted everything, everywhere. It changed the world. We can't deny that no matter what we believe. It changed lives instantly, and it was a really big deal, and it was a really, really big success. And so today, here we are just still in chapter 1. We've just covered 13 verses, but remember, this is the immediately gospel. Everything happens really, really fast, and we get to this, and then we get to that. We've just covered 13 verses, and already we're getting to a quotation from Jesus we're getting a quick summary of what he would have taught, what he, what he was about when he preached. I mean, isn't that important to know what he was about when he preached, what Jesus was about? I think so many movements, so many institutions, they, they, they want to claim Jesus today. If you want to influence Christians, right, you need, you need to be able to attach Jesus to whatever you're about, and then you can influence Christians. That's kind of the name of the game. And so what you have in our society in our, in our, today is that Jesus gets attached to all sorts of different things: political movements, religious movements, all sorts of different things. And so when you really, when you really start to examine this and see all of these different versions of Jesus and versions of what he was about, it gets really disorienting. It's really confusing. I think a lot of non-believers today, they use that as an as an excuse to not even examine what Jesus was really about. Oh, everybody talks about Jesus, it's all contradictory, and there's just a mess of different options out there. I don't want even, even want to try. Or maybe you grow up Christian and so you, you are professing Christian, but even the thought of sorting through all the all of the different denominations and all of the, the different uh, you, you know teachings of Jesus, they're so different. It, it's, it's very intimidating. To begin to sort through all of that so we just don't and so we have this zoomed out kind of vague understanding of who jesus is and what he was about but i want to encourage you i think it's so important for any professing christian to just set all of that aside set all that noise aside turn it down and just go to the bible and see for yourself what jesus was about i mean Right? We have the New Testament. This is the information that has informed Christianity since the beginning. This is how we discern what our faith is. This is, it's the only way Christians have ever discerned who Jesus is and what he was about. And so if you want to know what Jesus was really about, go to the horse's mouth. Read what he was about. Read his message. Read his sermons. And so today we get this quick summary of what that message was all about. And we're going to examine it in three ways. I want us to see, first of all, that this was a historic message that he preached. The second thing I want us to look at is this was a message that called for change. And third of all, we see that this is a message that did cause that change. People responded to this message with a changed life. And so here we are, just a a few verses into the book of Mark. We get to see what Jesus is about. So turn to Mark chapter 1. We're just going to start with verses 14 through 15. And I think this is an incredibly, incredibly important moment in the gospel of Mark. What does Jesus have to say when he starts preaching? Verse 14 starts this way. It says, now after John was arrested Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus was a preacher. He came proclaiming. And he came proclaiming not just any message, but a specific message. He came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. Your translation might say the gospel of God. Other translations may say the gospel of the kingdom of God. And the reason why why uh, one is longer than the other in some uh, versions is because when you go back and you research the earliest copies of Mark that we have, about half of them just say the gospel of God, and the other half say. The gospel of the kingdom of God. There is no difference there whatsoever, as a matter of fact, right? When you finish the the sentence of what he was proclaiming, it includes the, the kingdom of God. But that is what Jesus was about. He was about the gospel. And so the gospel is this really popular Christian term to us. We hear Christians talking about the gospel. But the gospel is not just a buzzword in our society it's not a buzzword amongst christians this is a bible word and jesus when he preached he was about the gospel and so this this gospel when we when we analyze it that is it literally means the good news he came preaching the good news the gospel of god the good news of god so now it's not saying good news this there is a god that's not what he's saying everybody that would have listened to jesus was on board with there being a god and so everybody was on that page he's not saying good news there's a god rather he's saying this is god's good news to us his people he came proclaiming god's good news to his people and to jews that was especially significant Because they were waiting on good news. They were were waiting on good news from God to arrive. And they, they expected it to arrive in a very specific way. The Old Testament has all sorts of prophecies as to how this good news would arrive. And so it was God's good news to his people that he would redeem his people and his rule, this, this good news would, ar- would arrive and, and his rule would, would manifest specifically through an anointed one. And we're, we remember in, in Jewish terms, if they were referring to the anointed one, they would say the Messiah. This good news would arrive that this Messiah, God's going to redeem his people through this Messiah. So if you spoke Greek, you wouldn't say Messiah. You would say Christ. That's why we see those words in the Bible. They're both referring to the anointed one that would, that would begin this good news. That would, it's, this good news would manifest through this Messiah. And so that's what Jesus came preaching. This good news is here. I'm here. The time is fulfilled. Did you notice that? The time has, is fulfilled. That's, that's how he presented the gospel, as a specific time had been fulfilled upon his arrival. So now, we kind of miss an emphasis here because we're, we're reading this in English. If you ever want to know for sure how this landed on the ears of the people listening, you have to study that Greek. And I'm not a Greek scholar, but I love studying Greek scholars and what they have to say. So when, there, there are two Greek words for time. We're probably semi-familiar with both of those, I think. The first Greek word used for time is chronos. And so when you would use that word for time, you're talking about the moment-by-moment passing of time. You know, what time is it right now? How much more chronos do we have before this pastor shuts up? You know, that's we're talking about how time is moving. That's We would use chronos if we're talking about that. But the other word for time in the Greek language is kairos. Now, you might be familiar with that word here, especially, Randy Wilson has the the kairos ministry to the prison ministry that he's a part of, The, the name of it is kairos. That's the other Greek word for time, and it refers to time in a different way. Kairos is a moment in time that affects all time after it. So the closest word we have to that word is historic. That's the closest we can get in our language to say it like Jesus said it. Jesus came on the scene saying, a historic moment has arrived. I've come to present the gospel of God. A historic moment has arrived amongst us. Kairos, that is the word that's being used. That time, this kairos is right now. And everything from this point on will be different. Because right now is an historic moment. That's how how it would land on the the ears listening to this initial message. And so you can get how, like, the Jews would be like, whoa, we've been waiting for this. We've been anticipating this. And he's claiming that this time that we've been waiting for in this Messiah, that time is right now. God's gospel is right now. It's unfolding right before our eyes, and it's going to change everything forever. We know God's gospel is going to change everything from this point on. Nothing will be the same. And it's true, right? No matter who you are, no matter what you believe, no matter where you're from, it did change the world forever. It was, in fact, a historic moment. We measure time by it still, right? B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno domini, the year of the Lord, Right? Even if you change those terms, which I know in secular society we've changed that to BC and uh, BCE and CE, right? CE is common era and BCE is before common era. We changed that, I don't know, what was it, like a decade ago or something like that, because we want to be sensitive and that was too religious to say BC and AD. I don't care what you call it, 2021 years ago, this is what was going down. It changed the world. This message that Jesus preached was, in fact, historic in the sense it was kairos. It was a moment that would change reality as we know it. It would change everything beyond that point in time. And so he came preaching a historic moment. That's the gospel that Jesus was about, and that's how it landed on the ears of those who heard him. So that gospel the good news. We're familiar with that word in Greek too. It's, uh, it would land on Greek ears like euangelion. Uh, when, you, when you transliterate that into Western hillbilly language, it's like evangel or evangelism or evangelical. That's where we get that word. That's just the Greek word for gospel. And so when we claim to be evangelical, we claim to be those who are about the gospel that Jesus preached. When we claim to be evangelistic, we are claiming to take this same gospel that Jesus preached, and we are taking it into the world and sharing it with others. We're being evangelistic, and so it's interesting, though, how that word gets thrown around today. These are—I I, just—I I always love the study of words because it helps me make sense of everything, right? Uh, but the the, the word evangelical—you you, know—a frustrating reality is that we change the definition. Of words over time there's several words like that that you may think of that what it meant when you were a child compared to what it means now is something different I think one thing that's happening in in our culture is that the word evangelical has been changed a little bit how that word is used has changed in secular society especially what that word refers to I think has changed a little bit to the point in which some Christians don't even want that label And So so sometimes evangelical kind of turns into this derogatory term when we hear a news anchor maybe use it in the news. Oh, evangelicals have done this today, and it becomes this negative term to refer to stubborn religious people. Now, no doubt there are several stubborn religious people within evangelicalism today. I don't deny that whatsoever, but that's not what that word means. And anytime I hear a news anchor or somebody use that word in like a derogatory way, I get really frustrated because I'm like, That's, that doesn't mean what you think it means. You're using it wrong. You're doing it wrong, sir. Right? I mean, and so I, I think as a result, it's been used as a derogatory term so much that there are several professing Christians, if you can wrap your mind around this, that will say, well, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I'm not evangelical. I'm like, What? What do you mean you're not evangelical? How could you possibly say that you are a Christian, but you're not evangelical? That doesn't, just by definition, that doesn't work, right? You see the problem with that? When you say you're, not, you're a Christian, but you're not evangelical, biblically speaking, what you're saying is, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to associate with the gospel that Jesus preached. Huh? You see, I mean, you see the problem there? The, the contradiction. Jesus was an evangelical by definition. He was about the gospel. When he preached, he preached the gospel. And so when we say we are followers of Christ, we want to be about what Jesus was about, right? So How, how could I take on any other label than evangelical? Are you evangelical? well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm about what Jesus was about. I want to be. I'm trying to be. And so, I mean, it's, it's frustrating when people use that term as a derogatory term or as a way to slam people or to talk about their frustration about a certain people group. It's insensitive. It's offensive. I hate it that people use it like that, but there's nothing I can do about it. I'm an evangelical. Of course I am. Jesus was about the gospel. I want to be about the gospel that Jesus preached. That's what he was about. That's what I want to be about. So if you change the definition of what that refers to, that's on you. I'm going with the historic definition of the gospel. So Jesus preached this historic message, and it did, in fact, change everything. But it was a message that came with a call to change. It still comes with a call to change. Where the gospel is preached, repentance is preached. So I'll read it to you again. Verse 15 says, he came proclaiming, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so whenever we embrace the gospel, we, we respond to this call and this hearing of the gospel by believing the gospel, and we express this belief through repentance, through change. That's how we as Evangelicals, as gospel believers, that's how we respond to the gospel. We respond with repentance. And so God's gospel, again, it is is a message that proclaims that God is redeeming the world, all of creation, including you and I. He's redeeming us. And so when you think about that, believing a message that God is redeeming a fallen world, it presupposes that you understand the world is fallen, right? It presupposes that you understand you need redemption that you're not perfect, and so belief in this gospel it, it comes with an acknowledgement that you are flawed and that the world is flawed and that God is so, so that it's good news because God is fixing the flaw it's the message that he is the fix and so that's why the gospel is good news right we don't have to fix what's wrong with the world we don't have to fix Ultimately, what's wrong with us? We can't. We are what's broken. And so that's why this gospel is good news. That's why it comes as a relief. Because it's God's message to his people that he is the fix. He is the one that is redeeming his creation. He's, the, he's redeeming this broken reality that we live in. He's the solution for our sin and our corruption. He is redeeming everything, including us. That's why it's a relief. And he's dealing with it in a just way. And he's dealing with it in a way that makes everything right with him again. And so with that said, doesn't it just logically make sense that belief in this gospel would be accompanied by a call to repent? We're acknowledging that this world is broken we're acknowledging that we are broken of course it would be accompanied with a call to repent we're broken we're sinful we're not perfect we need to change and so when he preached this gospel he called for people to change repent and so when we're about God's gospel that is redeeming all of creation we want to be about what he's about right Well, we wanna, if he's changing us and making us new again and dealing with the sin and corruption in our world and in our hearts, I wanna be a part of that. I wanna do that too because I wanna be like God. I'm one of his children. So I wanna do something about the sin in my life. I wanna take part in this redemption that is taking place. I wanna take part in what God is doing in the world and what he's doing in me. And so of course, of course, Repentance is part of the message here. And so it's a shame when we don't include that in our worship services. It's a shame when certain movements who claim Jesus exclude the call to repent and change. Because it's only logical that the gospel and a call to believe would be accompanied with a call to repent. I want to read to you really quickly out of 1 John because I think it helps us to understand it. It frames up this relationship between belief in the gospel and an acknowledgement of sin and why we should repent. In 1 John chapter 1, 5 through 5-10, he says this. He says, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. He's, he's like, here's the message. Here's the gospel we all know and believe. He says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So in light of that, he says... If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So this gospel, if we believe in this gospel, we believe God is light and perfect and and all good, but yet we still dabble in sin and, and think that's okay. We're living a lie, right? He continues to say, but if we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So the gospel is something that calls us to change, that calls us to repent, that calls us to acknowledge What's wrong with us, and that we need to change? Like you ever hear a version of Christianity that's kind of um, it's a half-truth? I, I feel like a lot of times we get a half-truth. We get a version of Christianity that says, "God loves you just the way you are. You don't need to change anything. You're perfect just like you are, because God made you and He loves you." Like, that's, doesn't that sound so loving? I can't deny that that sounds loving. It is. It's a a very loving thing to say. It sounds great, but it's a half-truth. It's not not the message of the Bible. And, And if you just leave it at that, God loves you just the way you are, and you don't need to change a thing. It flies in direct opposition to what Jesus himself taught. It flies in direct opposition to this call to repent that he made so much of when he preached the gospel. And so, yes... God loves us in the sense and and we don't need to change in the sense that like he doesn't need to he doesn't need our help to love us he doesn't need our help to redeem us he doesn't need our help to save us but it's that sin that necessitates that need to be redeemed right it's that sin that necessitates that need to be saved and so if we walk around saying God loves you just the way you are and you don't need to change that is a half truth that 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 separates, that divorces this concept of repentance from the message of the gospel and kind of makes the gospel, not kind of, it does, it makes the gospel irrelevant. And so John here is saying you need to understand who God is and who we are in relationship to him and just be honest about this. The gospel allows us to be honest about reality. We're sinful and we've fallen short. We need to work to change. And if we deny the sin that's in our lives... First of all, he says we make God a liar, right? Second of all, we're lying to ourselves. It's self-deceiving. And third of all, it proves that we don't understand the gospel at all. That's what he's saying there in the first chapter of 1 John. And so there must be repentance. Where the gospel is proclaimed, repentance is proclaimed. And if you separate those two things, you don't have the gospel. If you don't call people to repent of their sins, they're not hearing the gospel message. Because the gospel message includes a call to believe and a call to repent. You want to live faithfully? Pursue repentance. You want to say, I'm trying to be faithful? Pursue repentance. That's what it is. It's this ongoing acknowledgement of sin that's, an, that's accompanied with this ongoing desire to live with a spirit of repentance and change. We pursue change. We welcome it. We want it in our life. And so when Jesus came and preached, he would say, now, right now is this historic moment in which we're all being called to repent and believe. Right now, you need to begin living like this right now. So repent. Begin this life of repentance. God is redeeming all things. He's redeeming you and I. Now show the belief in that by repenting of your sins. And so Jesus never tiptoed around sin, so we shouldn't tiptoe around it either. We don't want to tiptoe around sin. Jesus, he confronted it. He called it out. He didn't offer a half-truth that sounded really good. He offered a complete truth that actively called people to change you might think about it this way. How often do you pursue and think about repentance in a serious way? Hopefully every time we gather at the very least, right? When we have that moment of of contemplating what repentance is looking like in our lives before we take communion. But how how intensely do we pursue this, this notion of repentance? Can you imagine if Jesus physically walked in here and called us to repent? What would be our our response to that call? I'll I'll admit, like I'm not a very expressive person in worship. I never have been. It's just my personality. I've been, uh, you know, it's just it's just who I am. It's just how it's it's more of an internal thing for me. I don't physically outwardly express that. But if Jesus came in here and called us to repentance, I bet you that would get me. I bet you that would change how I respond. I, I would just think that the intensity. Of my desire to repent and change would just increase so drastically upon his calling me to repent that it would just really, really change things. Right? Well, we have to understand that this gospel message that Jesus preached, right? It, it's still what we what we proclaim today. As a matter of fact, we have a fuller version of that gospel that he preached. We preached a fulfill a fulfillment of that gospel. We get to see redemption in its entirety through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And so when we think about the call to repent, that call is still very real and present right now. Anywhere that the gospel is proclaimed, we should feel, we should feel this desire to want to change and to want to repent of our sins and see a a changed life. So how do you know? How do you know if you truly have repented what is it i i I think sometimes when we think about repentance that's another notion that we just kind of we kind of reduce um we kind of we cheapen we cheapen what repentance is when you think about like have you repented or not what what repentance actually is it's a change of, of your mind that's literally when you when you study the etymology of that word, it's, it's literally a call to change the way that you think. And so when we reduce that call to repent to just feeling bad about ourselves, I think that's I think that's how most people think of repentance. Well, do I have I repented? Well, let's see. Did I go to church and feel bad about myself? Uh, yes. Okay. Well, if I felt bad enough myself about myself, then I've repented. I can get back to my life now. I felt really super sorry this afternoon when I was at church, or this morning when I was at church, and so I, I am. I am in an ongoing spirit of repentance. You've cheapened repentance if that's all it is to you. If it's just feeling bad or feeling sorry, that's not. That's not really what repentance is. It may incorporate feeling bad about yourself and the sin in your life, and you may feel that conviction. But true repentance, when you change the way that you think about something, it changes how you live. There is a a noticeable, tangible difference in your life when you truly repent. And so if you want to know if you've repented or not, reflect upon your life. Can you see tangible ways in which this has changed the course of your life? That's how you know if you have repented of your sins. Has it altered your philosophy on life? Ha- have the beliefs in our Christian faith helped you set goals that you're trying to attain? Has it changed your goals? Has it pushed you toward new goals? Have those beliefs that you have, when you, when you reflect on your life, those beliefs, ha- have they changed things in a meaningful and helpful way? Has your faith in Christ disoriented your schedule maybe shuffled your schedule a little bit it's changed something you've had to deny yourself in some areas of your life in order to include this in your life that's how you know if you have repented you reflect upon your life and you see if there is change there and so when you truly believe the gospel the gospel that Jesus preached it changes things you know it's going to keep changing things So when you live with a belief in this gospel, you're living with this belief that it's like a new lens through which you see everything else. When you see life through a gospel lens, it will change how you interact with this world. It will change your mind about how you feel about certain things. You will have conviction and you'll act on that conviction. That's what repentance is. It's what it looks like. And so what happens next in the gospel of Mark I think is like a microcosm of what repentance looks like practically. And so right after this summary of what Jesus would preach whenever he preached, we get to see people who heard this message, who knew and were beginning to understand what Jesus was about, and they actively repented. And so continue with me here in verse 16. This is when Jesus calls his first disciples. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So here we have Simon, who we, we know will end up being Peter. Simon, Andrew, James, and John. They heard this call from Jesus, and immediately it changed the trajectory of their life. Remember, this is the immediately gospel. We see that word immediately over and over and over. But you can see a tangible change take place after responding, that's how they responded to this reality of who Jesus was. And they were agreeing to learn from him. They were agreeing to be his students. They were agreeing that he was their teacher. And this is this is different. This was actually happening in a different way. Like today, when we decide we want to learn, we choose who our teachers are, right? We choose where we go to school at. We, we choose who we learn from. It was the same back then. If you wanted to learn something specific, you would Pick your teacher or pick your curriculum or whatever, and then you would pursue that path. But this something different is happening here. Jesus, the teacher, is calling the student. Instead of the student picking out their teacher, this is Jesus calling the student to be his disciple. He is choosing his disciples right here, saying, Follow me. He is, he is demanding this change take place. Follow me. And they did. They did. There was an immediate impact on their life when they interacted with the reality of who Jesus was. It changed their life, and it changed the lives of those around him. I can't help but notice Zebedee, right? Zebedee's with his sons. He's fishing. This is the family business. Jesus calls his sons, and then Zebedee's, like, in the boat fishing, and his sons get up and leave. Where are you going? It it impacted their family. It impacted those around him. And that's that's how repentance works. When you see this, when when, when you respond to this call to repent and believe, there's tangible differences in your life that those around you can't help but notice. You should notice the change and people around you should notice that change. And so when they were confronted with this reality of who Jesus was, this this historic moment had taken place. It started to change things, and so a historic moment took place in their lives, too, when they believed, and they repented, and it, man, it changed, talk about changing the trajectory of your life. When you look at these guys' lives in history, like Peter goes from, you know, being known as Simon, first of all, and just this fisherman in the Sea of Galilee, the small town there, and, and he goes, He ends up being in Rome. We see the timeline and the series of events that took place in his life talk about changing the trajectory. He ends up being crucified upside down in Rome. We look at John, he ends up being an elder in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. You look at Andrew, he ends up in modern-day Russia. I mean, just it's. little did they know how much this would really change their life. But that's the impact a historic message has on the world, and that's the impact a historic message has on our lives when we believe. Things change. And so this gospel message is meant to have the same sort of impact on our lives. Maybe it's not so drastic in the sense that we're going to end up in Russia preaching the gospel, but we see tangible differences in our life upon belief in this gospel. And so we are definitely encouraged to to contemplate, I think, in this passage, what has that repentance looked like in my life? When you look back at your life, what changes have actually happened? What differences are actually there? Can you identify them? What does what this call of repentance look like right now? What differences do you think need made right now? Because remember, repentance wasn't that one-time thing that took place in your life. We are to live with this ongoing spirit of repentance because we have not been perfected yet. We have changes that need to be made. You and I know very well we are flawed. We are imperfect. We have sin in our lives and sin that's around the corner that we don't even know about yet. We always have changes that need to be made. And we need to be able to identify how those changes are being made and think critically about our lives. We don't like to criticize ourselves, but we need to be critical of how we live. Is this honoring God? Is how I'm living honoring him? What changes could I make to to make his name renowned? What changes could I make to make this, this evangel, this gospel more prominent in my life, that the trajectory of trajectory of my life is being truly impacted by the reality of this historic moment, that I can have a historic change in my life too, that things after this point as I believe and embrace this gospel, things after this point totally look different than what they would have had I not embraced it. Those are the type of things I want to encourage you to think about as we walk into communion today, when we remember this historic message through taking communion, we, that's, that's what we're doing. We're, we're thinking about what needs to change and what has changed and what is changing in our lives. when we take that bread. I am loved by God. I'm accepted by him. I'm, I'm right before God. I'm justified before him by the righteousness of Christ. That's, his, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's something that changes time for me. That's what we need to think about when we take the bread and we take the juice to remember the blood shed on the cross. My sins have been atoned for. That makes things different. My sins have been atoned for. I am perfectly right with God right now. And I will be with him for eternity. So what does my life need to look like? What can it look like? What should it look like right now? I need to believe and I need to repent. That's the call of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the clarity that we receive as to what you were about when we read your word. It is so confusing to discern who you are when we're using the world and where you're using all of these different movements and institutions and ministries and thoughts and ideas to discern who you are, it becomes very, uh, very intimidating. Lord, we're so thankful that we have the source that has informed Christianity from the beginning and we can know for sure what you're about. We can understand with certainty what the gospel is and what it calls us to do. And then, Lord, we can discern all of these other things through that. Help us to live with that gospel lens. Lord, I pray that as we study your gospel, we are able to cut away the understandings that don't belong. As we think about what you were about, Lord, I pray that we would think about what we thought you were about and cut away the things that aren't informed by you, or that we can be about your gospel. Lord, help us to live in such a way that we have belief and repentance present with us. That as we believe this truth, it it would result in a changed life, a change that we can see. And Father, help us to inspire and encourage that change in one another, all to your glory. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray.